I'm excited to get back into the, the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, the key theme of our series is we must cling to what truly matters. We must cling to what truly matters. And as we've moved into chapter 4 um, of, our, of our study in 1 Corinthians, I began last week by asking you the question, are you living for the kingdom of God in your life? Are you living for God's kingdom? In other words, is your thinking, values, and priorities wrapped up in the rule of God in your life and in this world? The things you think about, the things you value, the things that you uh, prioritize in your life, in your agenda, in your thoughts, in your attitudes and actions. Are those characterized as a, uh, wrapped up in a mindset of God's rule in your life and what He desires to do in you and through you? See, when we're living for any other kingdom, God knows it. And as we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's only a matter of time until those around you know it too. It's hard to hide indefinitely what kingdom you're living for. Because it's going to show in your words. It's going to show in your actions. It's going to show in your attitudes. And in 1 Corinthians, we've seen so far that Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth to live in light of the gospel that they claim to have received. They are to live for a higher purpose than anything the kingdoms of this world can offer. And they were trying to mirror society around them and bring that into the church and bring that into their thinking, and it just wasn't working. And Paul seeks to give them a wake-up call. They're to give themselves to Christ, first and foremost, and then they are to give themselves to one another in humble service in gratitude, in love. So this week, this week we're going to continue looking at these three kingdom priorities that you and I are to strive after in the strength of the Lord. If we're going to be living for the kingdom of God individually and as a, a church, th these are characteristics of what that looks like. And just quickly by way of review, uh, the first one we looked at last week was faithful stewardship. Verses 1 to 5, Paul mentions that a steward recognizes his or her call. Paul says, this is how you are to regard me, not as somebody high and lifted up, but as a simple servant, a steward of Christ of the message of the gospel that he's given. And it is required in stewards, verse 2, a man be found faithful. 
And as we looked at this idea of faithful stewardship, not only are we to be faithful stewards to our one and only master, but we are to realize that ultimately we give account to that one master. Nobody else is going to be with us. Nobody else are we ultimately giving account to than God himself. He is the one that we answer to. He is the one that holds us responsible. But then we also saw last week, uh, we started to look at um, verses 6 to 13. Mike started reading from that passage. The second kingdom priority that we are to have are really two ideas wrapped, or two, two uh, aspects wrapped into one idea humility and true value. In verses 6 and 7, Paul says that all of these things that he's talking about, he's applied to his own life and to the life of Apollos as examples. That that we are not to go beyond the Scripture to put ourselves in a higher place than what God's Word puts us and wind up being puffed up. And that creates division Individually, division one against the other, and as a church, a divided church. Paul gives a wake-up call to humility in verses 6 to 7. He ends verse 7, we ended last week looking at three questions. Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? And remember that question reworded is, who do you think you are? Who sees anything different in you? Uh, The idea of that verse is, um, why do you think that you are superior to put yourself above Scripture? Above the call of the Gospel? Of a life submitted to Christ? And then he says, what do you have that you did not receive? What can any of us claim for ourselves that God did not give us? Our money, that can be taken in an instant. Our talents, abilities, who who was it that created us with those? Everything that we have has come from God. And then he says at the end of verse 7, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why are we living as if we are God? If we can say theologically, everything that I have, even those infirmities that are weaknesses in my flesh, God has sovereignly allowed into my life for His purposes and His glory. If we can say that theologically, is that what we're also living practically? Or are we living as if everything is dependent upon us? We got it, and it's up to us to keep it. It's far, far cry from what Job says, was it, is it not? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, uh, the, the Corinthian believers had it all mixed up. 
Their Christian life was all about themselves. And as Paul keeps repeating in the first three chapters, no, the Christian life, it is all about Christ and the stewardship that He has given us. The call, the wake-up call to humility. Well, this morning we're going to continue from here. And we're going to be looking, starting in verse 8, tied in with humility is the kingdom priority of being able to truly value the things of the kingdom of God. And if we value the things of the kingdom of God, then we are going to have a certain perspective to the things of this world. And we're going to look at that starting in verse 8. Before we do that, though, let's, let's go into the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray this morning that as your word goes forth, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. You would open the eyes of our hearts to truly have what you want for us. To receive what you have prepared for us. Lord, would today be a day where we realign ourselves with your plans, your purposes, your kingdom. That we would stop living for the kingdoms of self, the kingdoms of pride, of the kingdoms of riches, of this world, all that this world has to offer. Lord, would we stop being allured by these things and be caught up in the true value of your kingdom. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would uh, look on in verse 8 with me, read this in your minds as I read out loud. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, depending on what perspective you're looking at, life, you would say, wow, if this is true, then these Corinthians have arrived. They've made it. They're great. But it's dependent on what perspective you're looking at. And that's why in verses 8 to 13, we have to receive not only a wake-up call to what true humility is, but a wake-up call to the things of this world versus the things that are to come. We're going to start to notice as we get further and further along in 1 Corinthians, we're going to have to buckle our seatbelt because Paul is going to get more and more pointed with the Corinthian church. The issues that are really going on within this church, Paul is going to bring to the surface. And you could even say, from a human point of view, things are going to get ugly. And Paul here is talking very pointedly to the Corinthians. Now, many times in today's viewpoint of Christianity, we could say Paul is being unloving 
by being so blunt with the Corinthian church. And we're going to see that he gets very blunt with them in the chapters to come. But you see, the Bible talks that there is such a thing as truth in love. Paul could be doing nothing more loving than trying to confront the Corinthian Christians with the error of their ways, the error of their thinking. In verse 14, notice before we even get into the content of verses 8 to 13, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. How many of you who are parents have ever had to have a good heart to heart with your kids? Raise your hand if that's true of you. Now, realizing that heart-to-hearts as imperfect parents sometimes cannot go the way they should, sometimes tempers can flare in there, but when you are having a heart-to-heart in the right way as a parent, is that heart-to-heart meant to hurt or to help your children? To help. How many of you have ever had to have a heart-to-heart, now now we really have to nuance it, with your sibling. But it was not an argument heart-to-heart. It was a, I'm coming to you in love, and I, you need to see certain things. I would be unloving if I did not make you aware of this. You don't seem to be seeing this. How many of you have ever had to have that type of a conversation with a sibling? Not easy, right? Not easy. But you would be more unloving to ignore certain issues than to address them. And we see that here with Paul, that Paul is going to, uh, from here on out in the book of 1 Corinthians, is going to have to deal seriously and sometimes harshly with the Corinthian church, but it is for the purpose of their betterment. You see, many times the most loving thing that we can do as Christians is be willing to be seen as the enemy. Not an easy truth to live. But true love, if it is not clothed in truth, is not love at all. Now let's look at these blunt words that, that Paul has to say. And he is being, he is being um, sarcastic to make a point. Sarcastic not in the sense of being a smart aleck, but he is stating something in a grand way to try to wake up the Corinthians that this is really what you are saying by the way you're living. So let's look at this. In verse 8, what Paul does is he gives a characterization of people that are living in the wrong reality. Already, you have all you want. 
Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, of course, Paul is overstating his point to make a point. They were living in in the wrong reality that they were thinking that everything that they could ever possess or want could be found in the right now. The here and the now. You see, our recognized reality and our lived reality are not always the same thing. Our recognized reality that, yes, Jesus is coming, the best for a Christian is always yet to come, it is not now, that we need to be striving for the kingdom of God because the riches of this world, um, they, they, they corrupt, they fade away, the moth eats the clothes, the, the rust destroys the gold, all of those things. We know that, we recognize that in our Christian reality, but so many times the lived reality does not line up with what we truly know. And Paul is trying to say, you're living in light of the wrong reality. It's, your, your priorities are messed up. The first thing he accuses the Corinthian church with, individuals within the church, is self-sufficiency. Already you have all you want. I am all I need. I can provide for myself everything that I need. I may need God's help, His extra push, But I am not entirely dependent upon him. It's interesting that this this idea, you already have all you want, has the idea um, of being full. In fact, in Acts 27, verse 38, it's talking about having eaten and you are full in a physical sense. In other words, you are fully satisfied You are fulfilled in the here and now. Paul says already. But then he says next, already you have become rich. The characterization of of these believers is that they are striving for earthly riches. That they have all they need and that they can acquire all they need by following the philosophies of the culture. In which they lived. But yet we contrast that with a verse like 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. That's not a richness that they were striving after. It was a richness in the eyes of this world. But then he goes on and he says, without us, you have become kings. They were striving for rulership and power. We've already seen a specific example of this in 1 Corinthians that 
they were trying to follow different leaders like Paul or Apollos or Cephas or some even said Christ. And they were doing that to try to gain standing to be known by who they are backing. As if there was any division among Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. No, they were creating it within themselves. They're seeking to have some type of standing that mirrored the ways of the world. Standing within the local church, but also standing in the community. It's interesting, in, first, in chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, Paul says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, tr- to try trivial cases? We'll talk about that when we get there. And then verse 3, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now contrast that which is to come with what the Corinthians were settling for here. They are living as if they became kings and were reigning. But you see, folks, the Scriptures say that God's people do not rule and reign reign now. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure... We will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. You see, as followers of Christ, just as in the ministry of Jesus on this earth, there was first the enduring of suffering and shame, the going to the cross, and then in accomplishing God's mission, God exalted Jesus to the right hand of the throne of God. So we as His followers, the Bible says, we are called to take up our cross, to follow Him, to endure, knowing that one day the glories of eternity will come. But the Corinthians, they said we can have it all now. Let's mirror the ways of this world and let's produce our own brand of Christianity. Then at the end of verse 8, it says, Paul actually says, And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What in the world does Paul mean by that? Well, we see that Paul again characterizes them with a misplaced timing and priority. Notice how in verse 8, he he continues to to use the word already. Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Would that you did reign so that we might share. All of these things have the idea of the immediate. And the apostles are not taking part of this so-called rule. Why? Because it was too soon. You see, Paul's point here is that If you claim that the Christian message is all about ruling and reigning and being rich and having being fully satisfied among earthly things, then that would mean 
that if that is true Christianity, that we would be taking part of this with you because we are followers of Christ. But you are living as if you are on an elevated status and it's simply not true. There's a lot of preaching in churches today, in books, on TV, about God wants you to be rich, He wants you to be happy, He wants you to have all of these things, and it's all a sign of God's blessing. Well, what about the faithful missionary across the world that is truly enduring for the cause of Christ that has none of those things? You see, we are not living for the here and the now in our Christian life. Maybe you are a discouraged Christian today because like the Corinthians, you've somehow gotten the timetable wrong and you are thinking that it's all about now. And the Scriptures say we are to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then these things shall be added to you. Now, Paul gives this characterization of what it looks like to live in the wrong reality. And maybe, again, we have been caught up with that. And we are left doubting God and allowing bitterness in our hearts. But here's a contrast to help us, verses 9 and 10. Paul not only presents a characterization of living in the wrong reality, but a contrast of what it looks like so many times to truly be living for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. What's the contrast that Paul is presenting as opposed to having all that they want? Verse 9 says, For Paul, for the apostles, God has exhibited us as last of all. You see, they were the least of humanity, at least in the present. They were a perfect picture of weakness and defeat in the eyes of the wisdom of this world. They were last of all. They were the ones, as we talked about earlier, that would be picked last on the basketball team, so to speak. They would be looked upon with scorn. You see, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom, so to speak. Whereas Jesus says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The kingdom of, of God is totally contrary to the values and the priorities of the things of this world. And if we are going to live for the kingdom of God... We must become comfortable with living to a different drumbeat than what we're hearing all the time. 
through the news, through books, through uh, podcasts, through, through, through so many different vehicles. They were the least of all. Now, it's interesting when he says this term, least of all, and he says that they are exhibited as least of all. There's really two word pictures that, that come into mind here that, that, that are, are culturally relevant to the first century. First of all, they are, Paul is giving an analogy here that they are like captors who mighty armies would come, they would defeat a city. And returning back to their kingdom, the the king and the, the army would lead in the procession with all of the riches of that city that they plundered. You'd have the king, you'd have the military generals, you'd have all of the important people followed by the army, you'd have the great wealth and riches that they had plundered in that assembly, And guess who would be last in line? It would be the captors of that city. They were either on their way to slavery or they were on their way to execution. This is what Paul and his associates were content with. They were the least of humanity. But not only that, they were on display in the earthly and heavenly realms. Uh, Continuing with this idea, look at the rest of verse 9. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a, a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The apostles, these people that were preaching the message of the gospel, that were following Christ as, as faithful stewards and servants... They were actually looked upon with intrigue in the eyes of the people of this world. Who are these men that are willing to debase themselves so much for this message that they are proclaiming? And even in the eyes of angels, both fallen angels and God's messenger angels, they were looked upon with intrigue. For both the privilege it was to carry this gospel and to suffer so much for it, and the astonishment of fallen angels that they were willing to say no to so much in this world for that message. I mentioned to you two word pictures that that are really presented to us from the the, the culture of the first century. The second one is being a spectacle. That's the word we get theater from. And it has the idea that they were almost in a theater or think of the Colosseum where thousands upon thousands of Roman citizens would flood the theater to see the gladiators perform. And do you know what would happen at the end of the show? The criminals, the Christians, would be brought out to face the death 
their death at the hand of these gladiators. Paul says it is as if we are put on display, we are put in a theater where we are sentenced to death knowing we will breathe our last looking into the eyes of a gladiator or one of the animals that were with the gladiators in the stadium. Isn't that a contrast to having all you want? To already be as rich as you want? To be kings? Then we see in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. But again, trying to wake up the attitude of these Corinthians, he says, but you are wise in Christ. (laughs) What a contrast. He's basically saying, if you are right in the way you are going about things, in your thought processes, in your priorities that you are placing, even in the name of Christ, then that means that we are simply fools for Christ, which they were. The Bible says, in the eyes of the world, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But yet these individuals who have it all together, they are wise in Christ. What a contrast. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute or dishonor. You see, verse 10 tells us that the contrast, the way of the kingdom of God is foolishness, it is weakness, it is being despised. Not many of us want to have that type of characterization in our life, do we? I don't. But if that is the the call of the kingdom, that above all else we be willing to appear foolish, weak, despised, then what should our response be? We are to be servants of Christ. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 28? It's such an encouraging passage to each of us. I'll just, if you flip over a page, you can see it for yourself talking about our calling to salvation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If that was our state when God found us and called us, what do you think it is that happens somewhere along the the way in our Christian life that somehow we then elevate ourselves from that state to think we will actually arrive in the eyes of this world. That is the state that we must continually be in. Our mindset 
as Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek or the humble. And it goes through that whole list. Those that spiritually see their emptiness without God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you forgotten that? But Paul doesn't just leave us with a characterization of what it looks like to live in the wrong reality and a correction that those who are truly living for God will endure difficulty and must even willingly endure it. He doesn't just present a contrast to this characterization, but in verses 11 to 13, he presents a correction for us. Here's the way back home. Here's the change in our mindset. Look at verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. What is the correction that we have to see from Scripture to get us back into the right reality as followers of Jesus? Number one, we have to realize our best life is not now, despite what the Christian bookstore may tell you. Your best life is not now. The Corinthians in verse 8, they had the attitude that Already, not for the the age yet to come, but already we are fully satisfied. We are ruling and reigning. We have prestige in our society. We are rich. Paul contrasts that and says, to the present hour, already, in other words, this is what is true. What were their present conditions? We see in verse 10, or uh, uh, in verse 11, there was hunger and thirst. Rather than having their full, rather than being fully satisfied, the apostles had to learn, as, 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 as Paul says in Philippians, I know how to be content in plenty or in little. Not only that, but they were poorly clothed. They were poorly dressed. They didn't have the robes of royalty that so many of those Corinthians sought that showed that they were important in society. And even in the church, we're going to read later towards the end of the book, how different people would think they were more important than others in the church in Corinth. And they would literally... uh, uh, eat all of, all of the food and leave the less important people with little food and then they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. What, what hypocrisy. They were poorly clothed. They were beaten. They weren't reigning. They were buffeted. They were beaten. They were homeless. They, the, uh, Paul and his associates purposefully traveled from city to city without a home to call their own 
to spread the gospel. They followed the example of Jesus when he says foxes have holes. And then he gives the example of another animal I can't think of right now. But the Son of Man does not have a specific place to lay his head. And then he says at the beginning of verse 12, and we labor working with our own hands. Now, is that a bad thing to labor working with your own hands? Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians that the person who does not work should not eat. But again, you have to understand the context of 1 Corinthians. Um, I could explain it in my own words, but I have a, 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 a quotation on the screen for you that um, says it really well. It says, The fact that Paul and the apostles work hard with our own hands may sound neutral or even positive to modern ears, right? We don't endorse laziness. However, in the ancient world, or more specifically, to the cultural elite, with enough leisure time to savor the wisdom of the world, manual labor was a marker of a demeaning and low social status. So get what Paul's saying. In the eyes of the Corinthians who so prioritized the philosophies of the world and following philosophical leaders, in order for Paul to truly be someone worth following, he needed to appeal to, to their earthly senses. And by him saying, I am going to work with my own hands, he made tents so that no, he wasn't... Um, being supported by, by any one particular church as he went out, he worked with his own hands, and in the wisdom of the world, they said, he's not someone worth following because look at what he's doing. All of these other important people, they don't have to do what he does. People just flock to them, and they receive income from them. They have enough Time to just teach. He's not someone worth following. Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher, says this, Unbecoming to a gentleman, too, and vulgar are the means of livelihood of all hired workmen whom we pay for mere manual labor, not for artistic skill. For in their case... The very wage they receive is a pledge of their slavery. Wow, what an attitude, huh? You see why it's a big deal? It was a stumbling block for churches like the church in Corinth to see Paul, who's actually loving the church and serving the church by doing his own manual labor so that he's under no obligation to them. Yet because they were caught up in the philosophies of this world, it was a stumbling block. I wonder what stumbling blocks are present in our lives because of the philosophies of our world that we are living in. You see, Paul gives a corrective that God's people, though looking foolish to the world, are actually magnified by God. We see their present conditions, the state that they are living in, but what are their reactions to this state? 
The middle of verse 12 goes on to say, when reviled, what do they do? Do they get even? Do they get back? We bless. Not only that, when persecuted, what do they do? Do they plot their revenge? We endure. It's like Jesus said in John 15, 20, the servant is not greater than their master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Are you willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to be socially ostracized for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to look uncool in the classroom for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to be the odd teacher Are you willing to be the one that things kind of get quiet when you enter into the room for the cause of Christ? That's what it looks like to live for the kingdom of God. Persecuted and not enjoying it, but enduring it with joy of suffering for your master. When slandered, verse 13, we entreat. Or in other words, the NIV says we act kindly. The noun form of that word that's used actually describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit to Christians. Admonishing. Building up. There's no getting even. There's no, I'm going to stand up for myself because nobody else will. In a carnal way. See, what's their present status? The end of verse 13. We have become and are still. In other words, literally, until now, contrasting with already in verse 8, that the claims of, of uh, the attitudes of this church, we already, in a, he, Paul's making a contrast, are like the scum of the world. The scum of the world. You know that word scum, what, what that's referring to? When you're cleaning something filthy or you're scrubbing something and all of the gunk that's dripping from that and you don't even know what that gunk is, that is what Paul says he's considered. Wow. Please don't uh, uh, mention this to her, but this morning, uh, Rachel and Isaac and, and Timothy went to church early, so Julie and I and Sammy, uh, we came late, uh, later, and uh, on the way to church, Julia discovered she had stepped in some things while out in the yard from our dog, and uh, she said it was a little bit, and then when I looked at it, it was like all up her shoe, and it was, it was horrible, it was gross. Well, guess who had to come to the rescue? I got Rachel. No, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I was scrubbing that thing, uh, and I was, you know, trying to, to, to get her shoes clean so she could come in, and that's the idea, the grime that, that, that just falls off of stuff you're cleaning, and Paul says, that is what we look like in the eyes of so many in this world. We're so much scum that, that we're being stoned and, and persecuted, and, and we're being rejected and thrown out of cities. 
And not only that, if he didn't get gra- graphic enough, the refuse of all things, in other words, just the, the garbage, the waste of all things that you'd find in a city. That is how God's people are viewed in this world. Now, of course, the more Christian a society, the less true that this is. But I will never forget, maybe some of you remember, um, as, we, as we close, maybe some of you will remember uh, one of the videos we showed a few years ago with Voice of the Martyrs. Um, they highlighted a certain country, and they showed the types of jobs that Christians in this Muslim uh, dominated society would get. Did anybody remember that video we showed? What was their job they, that, that it showed in the, in the video? Anybody remember? The guy was dipping himself like he was in a pool in a sewer that was filled up in brown, nasty water, cleaning out the sewer. And he was thankful that he even had that job. You see, folks, it's not that as Christians that whether we live in this country or that country that, well, this won't be true of us. It's just a matter of to what degree will this be true of us? And fortunately, in the United States of America, we don't feel the full depth of what it looks like to live for the kingdom of God, to be a follower of Jesus. There's many countries that for decades and centuries have felt the full extent of this. But mark it down. No matter where you live, you will feel this if you are truly living for the kingdom of God. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of to what extent. So this morning, as we close, we see once again, we must cling to what truly matters. If the priority of following Jesus and and following the things of His kingdom do not truly matter to you, you will not cling to them in the face of adversity. Maybe today you are living and you realize that your reality is distorted much like the reality of the Corinth church. Today is the day to come before God in repentance. To pray with your family, whether that's here at church, whether that's at home, and to say, you know what? Mom and dad or mom or dad or get together as a spouse or, or, or you're single and friends or family. I haven't really been living for the kingdom of God like I should. And I want to take up my cross and follow Jesus because the path that Jesus calls us to is the true path of joy. It is the true path of fulfillment, of satisfaction, the true path of being filled, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.